Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Food Insight podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, chartered psychologist and kitchen resident, take you through all things food and psychology, including the role of food in our lives and the impact of nutrition on mental health. This episode really looks at where those two things meet and I had the pleasure and privilege of talking to someone whose work I have followed for many years. My guest is Professor John Cryan, who is Professor and Chair of the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience at University College Cork, and along with his long-term collaborator, Professor Ted Dynan, has led much of the burgeoning field of the gut microbiome and the gut-brain axis. In this episode, we talk about exactly what is meant by the term gut-brain axis, the link between the gut and brain disorders such as Parkinson's disease and depression, and what you can do to look after your own gut bugs. It's a fascinating conversation full of really useful information and he also answers some of your questions. So do make sure you have your notebooks at the ready. And so please enjoy my conversation with Professor John Cryan. I'm very, very, very grateful that to have a little bit of time with Professor John Cryan. Anybody who's listened to the podcast will know that I've followed his work for a long time and it informs a lot of my my clinical work and my clinical thinking. So thank you very much, John, for being here and taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule um, to, to talk to me. Could you, for the listeners who haven't heard of you, uh, just introduce yourself and your area of expertise? Sure. Um, it's my pleasure, Kimberly, to, 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 to join you and, uh, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to share with you I guess the journey that we've been on here in Cork, in the in the south of Ireland, over the last decade or so. So I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, head of the Department of Anatomy and Neuroscience here in University College Cork. I work in the medical school, and um, so you know I'm a neuroscientist by training, and my uh, background and 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 uh, core of what I've been interested in has really been in how we uh, as humans deal with stress and how our brain and our bodies deal with stress. So that's been what I've been working on for, for 20 years or more. And then um, over the last decade, we've been really intrigued by uh, how the gut uh, talks to the brain and how uh, that can be really important for how we deal with stress, but also in shaping other aspects of our behavior uh, as well. And then more recently, again, is the... the uh, microbiome uh, 
key regulator of this gut-brain axis. And the microbiome, for listeners who may not have heard about it or only heard about it vaguely, yes. is really uh, the collection of, of microbes that inhabit uh, our, not, well, mainly our gut, but all of our, uh, uh, our um, bodies, both on our skin and in our, in our oral microbiome, etc. So um, uh, it's really important to give you some clear facts on the microbiome just to just to reinforce how important uh it is uh before you know so your audience really knows yes please what we're talking about that would be great so in terms of genes we are more than 99 uh percent uh microbial and um you know that's really humbling uh, I find as a neuroscientist uh, and so um, and if we looked at our number of cells we have we have way more microbial cells than human cells mm-hmm. the weight of our microbes in our gut are about the same weight as our brain mm. and what's happened over the last decade there's been lots of advances in sequencing techniques and mathematical algorithms etc but what's happened is there's been a real uh, revolution in terms of understanding the importance that the microbiome has in shaping all aspects of physiology our immune system our gut health of course but all of the different systems within our body have been shown to be regulated by the microbiome and not least of all our brain and that's where a lot of our work has been on and and that's as a psychologist that's um, the area obviously that is closest to my heart and to my clinical work but what's really interesting and obviously we'll talk about a lot of that I have a lot of questions <laughs> um, um, but what's really interesting is that although this this research has really exploded over the last 15-20 years it's not it's not new is it I mean even back in the, the 1800s people were looking at the idea that the gut and the brain were connected in terms of kind of real scientific research Absolutely. I mean, I, I often put, put it down to a story uh, and, uh, uh, um, th- that's really important in the annals of medicine, uh, which goes back to rural Michigan in the 1840s, where you have a U.S. Army surgeon, uh, William S. Beaumont. And Beaumont is the father of modern gastroenterology. And uh, he had a patient uh, um, who uh, was uh, a Canadian fur trader who had a gunshot wound uh, to his um abdomen and basically what uh, Beaumont started doing was was having um, uh, experiments on this individual to see whether um, he could because he literally had a window into the digestive system and so he was able to see does uh, different aspects affect the rates of digestion and uh, uh, the patient Alexis St. Martin when he became angry or irritable, uh, it became quite clear that it affected the rate of digestion. And uh, so that really started people thinking that what's going on in your brain is also affecting what's going on in your gut. And so that we have this gut-brain axis that is very important for emotions. Mm-hmm. Then at, at the turn of the century, we have uh, Eli Mechnikov, who is also the father of modern immunology. And he is, won the Nobel Prize for his work on immunology. Uh, and as often happens, great scientists later in their careers, they come up with crazy ideas. And Mechnikov <laughs> had 
many, many crazy ideas. Uh, but, and he was working at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, and he was really intrigued by why did some people in parts of Eastern Europe live longer? And he was very intrigued by what they ate. And so he, he wrote about this uh, in, in a number of books, and he put it down to the fact that they ate a lot of fermented foods containing lactic acid bacteria. Interesting. And so basically he put forward the idea that by watching what's going on in your gut mi microbiome could really impact on your trajectory of your aging profile and how you age healthily. And really, you know, that was ignored for 70 or 80 years, mm. but it really is the starting point for a lot of this field. Now, some of his other theories were about, you know, intoxication and, and uh, people were already, uh, you know, uh, expanding on that uh, uh, and it never has held up. But it did get people thinking at that time and quite progressively that by targeting the microbiome, uh, you might be able to uh, treat certain uh, psychological uh, problems. And there are a number of published papers, including uh, uh, one from 1910 in the British Journal of Psychiatry about uh, uh, treating melancholia with mm. lactic acid bacteria, uh, uh, probiotic strains that we use today. So yes, it's not a new field. It's kind of one that we're revisiting uh, over and over again. And that's not unusual in science and medicine. No, not at all. And and on the, on the subject of depression, which obviously again, in my work is, is kind of what I'll see a lot of. The majority of my work will be looking at people with depression, with anxiety, um, dissatisfaction, low mood. And, and as I said kind of early in the introduction, that looking at the whole system is part of the way that I work. And, and so it's, it was really intriguing and hugely important to understand it's not just because this is what psychiatry and psychology have have done for a long time is to kind of look at brain issues as being solely in the brain so if you have a psychological problem we will treat it with psychotropic medication targeting receptors right. in the brain or we'll treat it with talking therapies which again are targeted at the brain or consciousness or whatever it might be um and there's been a real neglect of the rest of the body and the rest of what the you know the immune system or what the gut is is doing so could you um first of all describe what the gut brain axis is what that term means yeah. for people and and what do we know about the role of the gut on on depression in in particular or depression and anxiety and then we'll go on to, to stress maybe yeah yeah um great questions i mean the gut brain axis is really the um multitude of communication pathways that we have between what's going on in our gut and, and our brain. And so building on that early work from Beaumont, all the great physiologists from uh, Pavlov to uh, um, Claude Bernard and Cannon all started working on this gut-brain axis uh, and showed that it was very important for, you know, what we call homeostasis. Mm -hmm. And homeostasis is a, is a physiological term we use to basically uh, really describe how our body is in its normal setting and, and um, uh, unperturbed. Mm -hmm. And so we need appropriate gut-brain signaling for this to occur. There are different components uh, within our gut-brain axis. Uh, there are different pathways in, in, that they, in how they talk to each other. First of all, we should mention that our gut has its own nervous system. It's called the enteric nervous system. Uh, Mike Gershon has coined it the second brain. Uh, and, you know, there are more nerve 
nerves in our enteric nervous system than in our, our entire uh, spinal cord, for example. So, you know, that's an important uh, part that we often neglect uh, in, in all of this to understand that there are, you know, this important nervous system. And this nervous system is really vital for processes like digestion and motility and, and etc. But we're also beginning to realize that it, it's able to talk to a variety of, uh, you know, different systems within the body. And then that, that's really important uh, as well. Um, and then we know that a, another important relay mechanism between what's going on in our gut and the brain is the vagus nerve. And vagus, you know, comes from the, the, the Latin for, for wandering, long wandering nerve. It's one of the cranial nerves, very important uh, uh, signaling, uh, 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 neural signaling pathway between what's going on all across our body and the brain. So, mm -hmm. and there's two, it's a two way traffic. And uh, but it's all the vagus nerve also is, is able to send signals from the enteric nervous system up to the brain to basically get us to know how we feel. Mm. And there's a process in psychology uh, called interoception. Now it might sound a bit like a you know a a, a movie from Christopher <laughs> Nolan or one of these things, but interoception is is is, is really how we feel uh, about our bodies. And, and that embodied self, and it's a very important part of homeostasis. And uh, we, we know, for example, the vagus nerve is very important uh, uh, conduit of that interoceptive signaling and how that impinges into the brain and sends signals into the brainstem, and then from the brainstem they go to other higher areas uh, like the insular cortex and other areas that are important for, for top-down regulation. Um, and so this gut-brain axis, under normal circumstances, is, is, is operating uh, to modulate, uh, you know, some of the fundamental uh, uh, organic processes we have within the body, uh, as well as we now know playing a role in, in, in some of the higher functions, including mm. cognitive processes and uh, even maybe in how we deal with stress. Mm. Yeah, so, um, so I had one question. So in, on interoception, is, would that be the kind of internal version of proprioception? So is our, inter our internal sense of what's happening in our bodies, our feelings, that sensations yes. of our heartbeats and, and that sort of stuff? Absolutely, okay. exactly. Heartbeat, heart, you know, exactly. You know, and, 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 and it's a really exciting area in many ways because it, it's all about how you know, it, it influences many of the behaviours that, that have gone awry in, in different psychological problems. Sure, because so that makes me think about anxiety. When, when we think maybe cognitively about anxiety, one of the theories is that people are too attuned to their uh, physical sensations. So they're too aware of how their heart rate is, is beating. They're too aware of their, the speed of their breath. And, that they... and, and that's all Vegas. That's all Vegas dependent. Oh, wow. Interesting. Um, and there was the, the really interesting study, and we're kind of skipping about a little bit, and I'll take you back to depression in a moment, but um, on Vegas, there was that fascinating study um, about the relationship between the gut and Parkinson's disease. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? Do you... Yeah, so, so um, the, the, we're, the role of the Vegas is very important, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. and we've shown in our even our animal studies that uh, if we don't have proper vagal uh, uh, um, connections that the effects of certain bacteria don't happen uh, in the brain. But the other relationship is with the vagus and um, um, neurodegenerative diseases. 
and, and there are a number of theories here. Uh, some people feel that certain neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's uh, begin in the gut and spread prion-like uh, through mm. the vagus up to the brain and basically start uh, uh, spreading from the brain stem onwards from there. Um, we would also argue that microbes are, are potentially able to regulate the brain through the vagus and so microbial signals could be involved in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Uh, also through the vagus mechanisms. And the reason we think the vagus is so important comes from a, two very nice, intriguing epidemiology studies. The first one from Denmark uh, a couple of years ago, uh, where they looked at uh, the uh, Danish medical registries. And uh, before we realized that uh, peptic ulcer disease was, was due to a, a, a microbial um, uh, trigger, mm-hmm. um, so before we identified uh, Helicobacter pylori, mm-hmm. uh, people thought it was due to stress. Yes. And so, and the impact of stress on on, 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 on on signals from the gut to the brain. And so, to get rid of these signals, they performed either truncal or local uh, vagotomy uh, in these people. And so, you have a whole uh, cohort of people who are walking. So many are still alive who are walking around without this vagal signal getting to the brain. And in only the way the Scandinavians can do, they have really good medical records. And so they show that if you had a truncal phagotomy, a full cutting off of the signal, that you had a 50% reduction in the incidence of Parkinson's disease. And that was replicated in this last year um, by a Swedish uh, examination of the Swedish uh, medical registries. So it seems to be very, very robust. That in, and it tells us that not all signals coming from the gut are good. Uh, some of them are actually the bad signals. And uh, the question remains is whether this is due to synuclein spreading, like which is a protein involved in Parkinson's, spreading prion-like through the vagus, or whether it is due to the microbiome. And I'm a little bit hedging my bets on the latter, although the, the former it has received a lot more attention. And I suppose with, with all things, I mean, first of all, we should be very careful and we'll, we don't know anything just yet. This is all very early science. Um, but presumably with, with all things, it's going to be about the balance between those two things, the good and the bad, or the interaction absolutely, in the body. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to depression and, and probably depression in the context and separately from IBS, because what I see a lot of in clinic is a lot of because I, I work in central London people are very stressed <laughs> they are always on the go and they crop up with a lot of um of gut issues and I'm starting to wonder whether it's a kind of epidemic of gut issues there are so many people kind of 30 and under who are complaining that there's something up with their guts and one of the things I recently did a podcast just on some of the latest research on on IBS and was trying to make clear the point that it's a stress sensitive disorder so what is the impact of, of psychological stress on the gut or vice versa? Yeah. So with regard to uh, just on the IBS question sure. briefly first is, is that, you know, it's one of these unloved disorders. You know, I always uh, we, we've been working on it uh, uh, for some time. And uh, I think the reason that you're seeing a lot more of people complaining of gut problems is that people are, are actually now willing to complain because there's an embarrassment factor and I think you know we're because we see more and more TV um, ads and things about talking about you know things like mm-hmm. bloating and uh, uh, digestive health so I think people are not afraid to say it and are beginning to recognize the 
real impact it has on everyone's working lives. Mm. You know, not just in terms of absenteeism, but also in terms of, you know, presenteeism is, is, is the word I really like. Where people are there at work, but they're, they're suffering, and, mm. and, and it's really important. And, and one of the big things in IBS that have happened in the last year or two has been really the, 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 the formal realization and documentation that it is a disorder of the gut-brain axis. And that it can't be just seen as a local gut problem. It is actually a gut-brain problem. And, 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 and that's now within the Rome 4 criteria, very much uh, uh, part and part. So, uh, we know that stress is a big trigger for IBS. But independent of IBS, if we just talk about stress in general, what it's doing to the gut is, mm-hmm. is, is that stress, uh, evolutionary, we're wired to uh, basically when we're under stressful situations, stresses are threats. To our survival. So when you're uh, when you're stressed, you need to start doing things to respond to that threat, mm-hmm. and that means that you stop doing things you normally would do. So uh, a lot of our systems in the body react to stress uh, in that way. So, for example, uh, our gut will stop in terms of. Uh, wanting to get more food in so your food intake mechanisms you know the last thing you want to do is if you're being chased by a, a lion is to stop and have stop a meal or think about, you know? <laughs> no. uh, 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 and so these are some of the and, and, and basically digestion is changed uh, the same with reproductive function you're not going to stop and have sex if you're being chased <laughs> by a lion and the same with a lot of it and the problem is, is when you have chronic stress and when you have cro- or traumatic stress, where it's mm-hmm. over-seeking that, that, that these systems then go awry and you get big changes going on in, 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 in terms of, of gut health. And what we see in, in, in stress conditions is that you get a pro-inflammatory phenotype, the immune system goes into overdrive, the barrier function of the gut itself uh, starts to the integrity starts to to, to, to be lost. Uh, you get an activation of the autonomic nervous system, your enteric nervous system. You get a, a whole variety of different things. And then on top of that, uh, and it's not clear yet whether it's cause or consequence, but it's probably both. Is that we get changes in the gut microbiome mm-hmm. and, and the composition of that. And so uh, all of that then starts to perpetuate the, that the signaling from the gut to the brain. Uh, goes awry and people feel stressed and they have this uncomfortableness and one of the key symptoms for example of IBS is visceral pain and we've worked a lot on showing that stress is a key trigger for uh, visceral pain uh, pathways. The other interesting thing is that while depression and anxiety are often comorbid with IBS, Mm -hmm. there are people who just have IBS and there are people who just have depression or anxiety Mm -hmm. without them. So it also tells us that it's more complex, that there are different pathways for each of these different syndromes, but there is convergence to a, 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 a multitude of these systems. Sure, and possibly or probably one of those big overlapping systems is going to be kind of uh, systemic inflammation because the microbiome, yes. the microbiome has an important role in managing immunity and inflammation, is that right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, one of our, the, the core regulators of our immune system from the moment we're born is our microbiome. And I think that's that's really fascinating because I think people 
won't really appreciate that so much of what we understand as our defences against pathogens, viruses, illnesses starts or is is focused, centralised in the gut. You know, I, I don't know where we would think it is, but we wouldn't normally think, oh, somewhere in my gut is is all of my uh, immune system. Absolutely. I mean, our mucosal, what we call our mucosal immune system is the key driver of our entire immune system and, 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 and protecting us. And again, if we look at it from an evolutionary perspective, and there's some nice work being done in this regard, uh, is that in, in our former, you know, hunter-gatherer ways, we had to have an immune system that was able to adopt to these pathogens and these threats from the environment, and, and that was able to become activated. And, uh, and what's happened in our daily lives is that we've got a kind of a hyperactivation of these without the pathogens there. So, you know, you, 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 you're having a, a very... Uh, pro-inflammatory lifestyle mm. driving this. And what's become clear, and, and again, I, I, I want to reinforce this because maybe some of your listeners may not be aware, is that w- there is a shift in our perception of depression over the last number of years to really reflect on it as a disorder uh, of the immune system, mm. not just of the brain, uh, and, and that it really has this pro-inflammatory phenotype in depression, at least in a substantial cohort of people who have depression show elevations in uh, uh, key immune molecules. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of effort now is trying to see, well, could we use this as a way to treat people? Should we treat them differently than people who don't have this? And then what is the role of the microbiome in shaping this uh, inflammatory process? And, and, and that's still a lot of work to be figured out. Sure, sure. But I, I know that the research in that area has been really fascinating. What's been lovely has has been the, the RCT trial. So the trials where they injected, what was it? The, yes. <laughs> and and was able, were able to induce depressive symptoms by kind of upregulating the immune response. Um, and, and what's really interesting for me is that we know, and I, I, can, I see clinically, and you look around in the NHS, you know that rates of treatment-resistant depression are going up and up and up and up and up. Um, and we have had you know, supposedly um, effective treatments since the 50s or 60s, the SSRIs and you know our antidepressant medications, and yet we're not seeing this shift. And so the idea is perhaps that we need to go back, at least for some patients, to the drawing board and think about, well, perhaps if it's not about you know, ineffective serotonin uptake or um, you know, brain chemicals being out of balance. Is there something else influencing this? And that's why this idea of, of the immune system affecting brain function has been so interesting for me and, and a, a lot of other psychologists and psychologists. The, the whole area of nutritional psychiatry itself has been fascinating. The idea that perhaps for some people we could approach inflammation or uh, just immune system or or diet to try to impact depression is amazing and on that note the felice jacker's research was fantastic so for um i'll I'll put this in the uh, show notes for listeners but as a quick overview felice is a researcher in australia for the food and mood center and they did a trial an rct trial just using nutritional interventions basically a, a mediterranean style diet and it significantly improved depression in a group of people who who had clinical depression, and that's that's tremendous. It's it's it, you know that trial is it's, it's a small trial, uh, but it's a very exciting trial. And uh, Felice's work on, has been really important in the field overall. A, you know, it is important to note that the, that it was an adjunct 
active trial, so the, the people continued on their psychotherapy and continued on their medication as well. Uh, and I think that's important, to, to, you know, because it shows that you're tackling the problem at multiple mechanisms, and it's probably multi, multiple mechanisms are going to play a role. But it has really reinvigorated the field. The missing part of that trial, uh, and this is something that we're working with Felice on a, a, a number of applications, is, is that uh, could the microbiome, be the conduit to, to what's doing because if you look at what the components of the diet that she gave to the uh, depressed individuals it's a mediterranean like diet it's full of uh, omega-3 fatty acids and polyphenols and while these have many effects on the body we do know that the uh, a lot of recent data is showing that what they are doing is changing the composition of the microbiome in a positive way uh, in humans and i think that's quite an exciting area to look at mm. is that can we use nutrition uh, to target the microbiome to actually then uh, target the brain and i think that that, that could be a play a, a, a significant part of, of what's going on uh, in felicia's study and, and then the, how the immune system is being tapped into through the microbiome as well and on that that note i have a slightly nerdy question <laughs> which it, it might be completely it might sound ludicrous uh, for someone doing the actual research but i was um i was recently um writing a paper on um the potential for nutritional interventions in alzheimer's disease um uh, to reduce risk and, and that sort of thing and i was reading about valproic acid um or sodium valproate which for listeners is a is a, a drug that is used for people with epilepsy and is a mood stabilizer and then i read that um chemically it's very similar to butyrate and they're they're both short chain fatty acids and i know that short chain fatty acids are a byproduct of microbial fermentation of fiber so (laughs) hypothetically at least would it be possible you know very theoretically but would it be possible for fiber to be a mood stabilizer oh interesting so so i don't think it's ever been properly looked at uh, possibilities are there. Uh, what you're pointing out is, is really intri- is really uh, important. Uh, um, like uh, valproic acid is also a histone deacetylase inhibitor, so mm. it works on epigenetic mechanisms, which do other short chain fatty acids like butyrate. Mm. So they share other uh, uh, properties chemically, and uh, I think fiber targeted fiber diets could be. People are testing them now in other areas of, of health like in diabetes mm-hmm. um, so um, there is no reason why they couldn't be the appropriate substrate to produce molecules that we know could have a direct effect on, on, on mood stabilization but we would need to do the studies sure, we, would need no, to we would need to do it. and the question is what dosage of fiber you would need to get concentrations of the metabolites mm. to the brain in a way that the they would do what they're doing or to the enteric system or whatever else so it, it is a good question not that nerdy actually, <laughs> uh, but i just think we need we, we need a lot more evidence or uh, to look at it and i think it would make a really a, a intriguing um uh, study we are looking at the impact of short-chain fatty acids on brain health others are looking at it too there is some mixed messages coming from the literature today from animal studies whether it is good for brain health if you 
so in, in, in most other diseases, whether it's obesity or diabetes or uh, cardiovascular disease, etc., uh, having uh, increasing um, uh, fiber intake and increasing short-chain fatty acids is seen as a positive thing. In relation to brain health, there's some you know animal studies which would report negative impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we need to have some more information from humans uh, about you know what uh, we need to do uh, and what are the long-term impacts of you know taking butyrate, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but I think that people are doing this, and I think it's going to be exciting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Fantastic. Well, I will certainly stay tuned for that. So thinking, so we know or we believe the best information so far is that fiber is pretty good for the gut microbes. What what else supports a good microbiome or what is a good microbiome? Yeah. So the interesting thing about a microbiome is, 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 is and we haven't as a field really grappled with this properly yet. One is that, um, you know, what's a good microbiome for one may be different to a good microbiome for others. So you could take two healthy people and look at their microbiome and it can be quite different. Mm-hmm. Now the core, the, the core makeup will be more or less the same, but, 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 but on the whole, you know, it, it, so part of me thinks that what, what, what we should be doing in the future is looking at each individual's microbiome when they're healthy and then track tracing it as it deteriorates. And we can see, we know then if, if, if there are changes that could actually herald uh, you know, changes in inflammation or other things overall. But but generally, and we're talking quite general, um, a good microbiome is, is a diverse one. And um, we know that diversity is uh, driven by the diversity of diet. Okay. So having a diverse diet is very good for having a diverse microbiome. Um, studies from my colleagues here in Cork did this uh, a number of years ago in a paper they published in Nature uh, in elderly people where they looked at uh, indices of frailty and cognition and immune health mm-hmm. and they linked them to the microbiome but especially to the uh, uh, the diversity of the microbiome so and, and the more diverse the microbiome the uh, less frail the, the uh, elderly were so what we know is that of course, fiber is a, is a very important factor. Other uh, anything that increases uh, diversity or the uh, uh, and also increases the levels of certain benefit, what we know is beneficial uh, bacterial 
uh, uh, strains, be the lactobacilli or bifidobacteria are the most widely used, uh, but also acromantia and others that are, have been highlighted to be play a role uh, are, 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 are also important. The other important thing to, 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 to note is that there is going to be a genetic basis to this um, because you know uh, a lot of our microbes are under genetic control. And uh, some intriguing studies have emerged showing that certain, if you have a certain strain, you inherit that strain based on your on, on your core genetics. And so, mm. th- the ability to totally shift our microbiome uh, is always going to be countered by our innate genetics. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting because what I had heard about in terms of um, inheritance of microbiome is is the work of the Sonnenbergs and um, yeah. how with increasing generations if your your diet hasn't been diverse or complex or uh, fiber rich enough that you can lose species and then your children will inherit a smaller diversity and so on and so forth yeah no and and, and that's vertical uh, you know transgenerational tra- transmission which is really important and really uh, interesting and very uh, intriguing data uh, there but we also have um, uh, work from Ruth Lay's group and Tim Spector in London uh, um, have also shown that that about forty percent of the the, the, the uh, microbes are heritable, and that it, like for example certain strains like uh, Christian LACA, uh, if you have that strain, you're more likely to be uh, lean uh, than uh, and they've done this in twin studies. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, it also there, there is a direct uh, inheritance there. Thank you. So on the other side of that, I suppose, what do we know either nutritionally or environmentally is is bad for the gut? Okay. So with regard to what's bad for the gut, we have a good idea. Where we don't know yet a lot about, and this is where we need to do more work, is so it is bad. And I'll talk talk you through some of these factors, Mm. but but it is bad for the gut. And then is it also bad for our mental health? That part hasn't really... Uh, fully been uh, uh, linked up together. So things that are bad for our microbiome, uh, and we can say this clearly, are um, processed foods, uh, exposure to antibiotics, being born by C-section, uh, emulsifiers, sweeteners, stress we mentioned, uh, chronic infections, and living in an in, in, in a, in a urban environment, and hypercleanliness. Okay. I think that's a, 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 a lot of different things. All of which we know will negatively uh, impact the um, uh, uh, microbiome. Gosh, and, and that's a lot in terms of modern lifestyle. So if you have someone, for example, who was born in the city, they don't get, you know, they're living a, a very stressful job, they're eating at their desk, a very processed diet, then that's at least three factors if they've been born uh, by C-section. <laughs> Susan Lynch in, in California and others have, have really looked at this uh, to try and tease apart the relative contribution of these, especially in relation to allergy and asthma and, and uh, 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 you know, where most of the work in terms of microbiome and health have been done, uh, as well as in obesity. Uh, you know, and, and a very intriguing study is, is a study a number of years ago where they looked at the Amish people um, in uh, rural uh, Pennsylvania versus similar genetically uh, uh, um, people of similar genetic background which would be the Hutterites who, have, who live in a more modern society and you know they're looking at the incidence of allergy and it, 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 it's non-existent almost in, in, in the Amish and, and the microbiome is driving this 
Mm-hmm. They showed in a number of papers. Mm-hmm. So we're beginning to see that our modern lifestyle is really bad for our microbiomes. And again, you mentioned the Sonnenbergs, they had this nice paper where they were able to show that if you chart the, the microbiome from the hunter-gatherer populations of modern uh, rural Tanzania today, the Hadza community, you, you can then look at, take an example of what happened with the introduction of agricultural practices, and that's what, what where we are with modern um, uh, rural Venezuela and Malawi, and then you can go to a Western world and you see this extinction mm-hmm. of the microbes that our ancestors had. And the, we know that autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and, and uh, Crohn's disease, etc., uh, and, and many of the allergies are, are non-existent in these ancestral communities. Um, but we know very little about mental health mm. and uh, stress sensitivity, of course. And, and uh, so the question partly is, is some of the mental health problems we have due to uh, these depletion of what's going on in our microbiome, how that's informing our immune system and our brain then. There's a, a lot of <laughs> research still to be done. And um, I, I know it, you'll have to go soon, but I just had a few more questions. No problem. Um, quite specific. So on in terms of, again, on things that are bad for the gut microbiome, one person sent a question in, which was asking about um, residues on foods. So conventionally grown foods that have pesticides or herbicide residues or antibiotics in meat, is there any evidence to suggest that that might be then translating to, to damage for the gut microbiome? So, um, with regard to, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion about the environmental impacts that we have in our, in our society on the microbiome. Um, I'm trying to, I, 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 off the top of my head, I can't think of a single uh, clear example where, that, where there's convincing evidence that that, that, that has been translated. Okay. With the antibiotic exposure, uh, that, that's more convincing work from Marty Blazer in NYU really is putting forward that, you know, and, and it's, he's done this in his book for the lay press uh, or lay public um, uh, missing microbes uh, basically that our modern obesity epidemic is due to uh, the impact of uh, uh, low dose antibiotic exposure which would be relevant to that in the food chain uh, and how that's impacting on our microbiome um, now, people haven't really looked at that too much um, in relation to brain health. There's some nice work from John Bienenstock's group in, in, in Canada looking at early life antibiotic exposure and aggressive behavior. Mm-hmm. But there's more work needed to be done in that. Uh, but, it, you know, almost anything, you know, they, uh, you know, from BPA and all of these chemicals that, that are environmental in our, our everyday lives uh, have been shown to have some minor effect on the microbiome. The question is, at what level does that mm. translate to anything functionally? Sure. And, and we don't know. Sure. I just, it raises, just on top of my head, it raises the question about <laughs> about professional swimmers. It sounds random, but if they're constantly in chlorinated water and perhaps gulping down chlorinated water, maybe that's an interesting area of research someone needs to do. There you anything. go. That's what I hadn't thought of, Kelly. <laughs> I've thought of different, you know, <laughs> you know, I've come from a, a centre where they've done the microbiome of the Irish rugby team. So we're, we're, we're all for doing a kind of a, a, a different, uh, but I must uh, remind my uh, uh, people who are interested in the, the microbiome. I'm always on hand for, for helpful ideas. Um, okay, so just two more questions. So one was from, uh, from Twitter and somebody asked, she said, um, apart from probiotics, what can you do in pregnancy to ensure that your child has the best kind of microbiome set up possible? 
Do we have any research on that? So it's a very important area and people are really looking at the first thousand days, which is mm. pregnancy and the first two years of life in terms of the microbiome and looking at it in a holistic fashion. Um, there's been one study now, really intriguing study from New Zealand, showing that uh, giving a, uh, a probiotic, uh, a lactobacillus rhamnosus during pregnancy and lactation, that it was uh, it, 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 it uh, dampened down the incidence of postnatal depression, which mm. will have effects on the, the infant. I guess during pregnancy, uh, uh, people, the microbiome itself changes, and that's an evolutionary process during pregnancy, uh, so that basically it, to become optimum, for handing over that microbiome to the infant as it emerges from the birth canal. So that's an important area. I think diverse diet and trying to minimize all of the factors that I mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, from stress to antibiotics to um, uh, 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 hypercleanliness, you know, mm -hmm. would, would be some of the things that, that we could try and, and, and do during pregnancy to have optimal effect and making sure that the infant gets the best microbiome handed over. Sure. Thank you. That's really helpful. Um, and the last one is, um, again, I was a few months ago, I had the opportunity to talk to Professor Walter Longo, who's at UCL Berkeley. Uh, he's a gerontologist and he's been doing a lot of research in fasting um, and the impact of fasting on autoimmune diseases and on cancer, so on MS and Alzheimer's disease. And more and more people are, are practicing fasting protocols, intermittent fasting, prolonged fasting, water fasting, all sorts of things. Do we know what impact fasting has on the gut microbiome, whether it's positive or negative? Yeah, so the, there's been a few studies in, in the, even in the last few months looking at this, and, and I know there's a lot of ongoing work on this. Uh, and of course, any impact of diet is going to impact the microbiome. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the easiest, uh, you know, uh, answer to that what we don't know very we know very little and, and of course fasting has been implicated in longevity and aging and and all of that but we don't know very little about how fasting impacts our mental health mm. and i think that's going to be an important area as well and whether the microbiome is influencing how diet you know by fasting whether it's it, it is effective because by fasting you're, you're you're rapidly you know you're basically putting your microbiome in turmoil because you're not providing it with mm. uh, the, the substrates that it needs and then it needs to get them from elsewhere and then you put it back in and you know so it, it, it's it's keeping the microbiome on its toes yeah yeah i know, I know that one of the things that certainly my, um fasting and heat exposure does is to upregulate heat shock proteins which are chaperones for amyloid beta which is why it's linked to perhaps protection from alzheimer's disease but um i'm not sure in terms of yeah kind of other issues like depression for example or or, or anxiety whether I, I, I don't think it's been done, looked at properly mm. yet mm. okay so that's a, a work in progress and we will come back to that so before you go i think it would be rude of me not to talk about the book <laughs> Um, and um, so with uh, journalist Scott Anderson, yourself and your your, your very often co-author, um, Ted Dynan. Yeah, Ted, uh, Ted is the head of psychiatry here and we run our team together. So uh, I'm a basic neuroscientist and he's a, he's a clinician. So we have this really great uh, uh, working relationship in, rela in, in, in terms of how we two heads tackling this problem. And uh, Ted coined the term psychobiotic, which I thought would be your first question to what is a psychobiotic uh, <laughs> overall? Because <laughs> uh, that's what people always ask me. Well, what is this psychobiotic? 
Well, yeah, what is a psychobotic? Let's, let's, let's round it off. <laughs> so, so, so initially we had relatively narrow uh, 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 explanation. It basically was a, a bacteria which was taken in adequate amounts which would confer mental health benefit. And uh, But more recently, and, and with, as the field has uh, changed and emerged, and together with colleagues at Oxford, Phil Burnett's group, uh, we've really expanded that to be any targeted intervention of the microbiome uh, that will support uh, brain health. And it, so it, it is probiotics, but it's also prebiotics, these dietary interventions that are really important. Uh, it could eventually be fecal transplants, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's early days there. And in certain circumstances, it might even be uh, targeted antibiotics, where we want to mm-hmm. actually, you know, just wipe out certain bad bacteria. So um, it, it's a very early field. It's a field very much in its infancy. Uh, we've given the book uh, a... Um, subtitle mood food and the new science of the gut brain communication and that's really what this book is about is about you know it's the early days of a revolution where as you pointed out right at the beginning that we could be targeting mental health and supporting long-term uh, uh, brain uh, health by uh, targeting what's going on in our gut and in particular our gut microbiome hmm. and and it offers I mean, the field and the book. I mean, the book is really comprehensive. It's and it's such a, a great introduction for people who have no clue what it is, and and it rounds off with an explanation for, for listeners, an explanation of what foods might be helpful, what things to avoid, so that you can start to introduce kind of gut supportive um, yeah. activities and behaviours into your lives, um, which is which is great. And I think from a clinical perspective, there are a huge number of restrictions on service provision in the UK at the moment. You know, the NHS is, is woefully underfunded. People are on enormously long waiting lists for either CBT treatment or to see their GPs, to get access to a consultant and, and all of this sort of stuff. And what really compels me is that there might be things that people can do that are free or, or low cost, they're easily accessible, there's no waiting list, there are a few side effects that might, and we have to be careful of course, but that yes. might be supportive for them either while they're waiting for treatment or alongside their traditional treatment. Absolutely, I think that's where that's one of the keys. And, and in tandem with that is even for people who, are, who don't suffer from anything, it's it, as a prophylactic, as a preventative mechanism to kind of help support what's going on. We feel that, you know, but by keeping an eye on what's going on in their gut might uh, help them uh, prevent suffering from stress-related disorders. We're not going to get rid of stress. We turn on the TV, we get, you know, stressed. <laughs> so we need to, we need to really uh, look at ways to be able to deal with stress in, in, in different ways. And we hope the book offers some uh, uh, insight into that. I'm but it's early days, as you point out, Kimberly. I'm, I'm sure it will. I'm sure that the book will, will do really well. Is there anything that people uh, consistently misunderstand about the gut microbiome or anything that kind of boils your blood when people are talking about the gut? I, I, you know, not there's lots of things, and I, I, I could bring up a whole <laughs> slew of different things. Uh, uh, a lot of it is issues that people don't know enough yet, and uh, are, are, there's a lot of healthy skepticism. Uh, you know, because in medicine we like to compartmentalize things, and so I'm a neuroscientist, so I should focus on everything from the neck upwards. And you know, if you're working in gut health, you should focus only on the digestive system and not understand that there are influences on that and, and I, I think that's part of it if we start thinking a little bit more holistically in relation to how our bodies work and how we have evolved 
and to realize that the microbes were there first <laughs> and that we have always all our body has evolved with this microbial milieu uh, then i think we might start seeing okay well maybe we should start from first principles if the microbes were there first that that they could be one of these better ways to target uh, some of these uh, stress-related diseases mm. so you know good critical thinking but not necessarily cynicism <laughs> uh, well no, cynicism is cynicism is good too uh, uh, you know uh, this field has, has emerged with lots of cynicism and I think that's you know it's important that, that it's been led by data mm-hmm. and led by you know I guess one of the, the, the big problems I have is is when people make a lot of anecdotal uh, 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 statements that, that that are overreaching and overselling mm-hmm. you know what's going on and and, and, and there's a risk in that, in that that you might mislead people mm-hmm. and so we, we do need to have you know uh, human trials with good intervention with good you know population size and, and anything else is, is is just giving us hints mm-hmm. uh, of where to go and, and we need to have the actual evidence behind it and that's for all aspects of nutritional science and nutritional psychiatry in particular and, and we're getting there and people like Felice that you mentioned are really leading the way in terms of doing this and I think it, it's going to be a very exciting uh, next 10 years in terms of you know identifying which patients are going to respond to which uh, dietary interventions and, and how that's impacting their microbiome to positively support brain health. That's fantastic that is it's it's really interesting and such important work and um, I really look forward to greater team working interconnected working between psychology and nutrition and movement exercise and physiology absolutely um to to get the best outcomes uh for clients and patients john if people want to uh follow you on instagram or socials or where can they find you i'm on twitter at at, at uh, uh jf crime um i they can i have a tedx talk from this year about this whole topic there will they can find that and a ted med talk from a couple of years ago they're both on the ted you, you you can find if you google uh, that will help people to get a better flavor you know uh, uh of some of the work that we're doing and uh yeah and then Scott Anderson, who's the key journalist underpinning our book, Psychobiotic Revolution, has a website uh, called Psychobiotic Revolution as well. Fantastic. So I will put all of the links to your TED uh, videos and uh, the websites into the show notes for everybody so everybody can find that um please send my gratitude also because i know ted isn't really out there in the socials world but i know he's a huge part of the work so please just oh, send. He, he, definitely definitely <laughs> and he's on twitter now so. oh is he oh okay i'll i'll, I'll stalk him there yeah, he he, he, we've convinced him on twitter so he's getting he, he's getting more on that but 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 a large part of the work is, is underpinned by his clinical practice yes fantastic so yes just send my gratitude to him and i will uh, thank him myself as well um and thank you again to you for taking the time out everybody the book is out in the uk at the end of the month 30th of november it's already out in the us so go and find that um i'll put a link to to where you can find it on amazon as well in the show notes and that just leaves me to thank you very very much for your time john thank you kimberly my pleasure And that's it. Hopefully you all got something valuable from this episode. I know I certainly did. Do head over to YouTube to watch John's TEDx and TED Med Talks and maybe say hello to him on Twitter where he is at JFCryan, C-R-Y-A-N. And all that's left for me to do is to thank you all very much for listening. And until next time, I wish you the very best of health.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.